We are in our summer series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you um, haven't been around, if you're new to GRC or if you've been on vacation, I'd encourage you to catch up on the first two messages. They are always available at graceredeemer.com by Monday afternoon, Tuesday uh, morning, the latest. Or you can subscribe to our podcast and have it um, show up on your digital device. Um, But two things I want to repeat as background that are very relevant to any message in this series. The first is the idea of hevel. Hevel is the Greek, a Hebrew word that we translate meaningless. It simply means vapor or breath, something that's here one moment and gone the next, poof. It's a key word of the book. It keeps popping up over and over. Secondly, the phrase under the sun or under the heavens, which refers to the natural world, a view of reality that excludes God and that only includes whatever your senses can perceive. Everything natural, nothing supernatural. And the way Solomon, the teacher, as he's called, calls himself in this book, the way he puts these two together is with this attitude, if... This is all there is under the sun, then everything's meaningless. What's the point? How do we make sense of any of it if this is all there is? Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, first 17 verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, give us the ability to, as time-bound creatures, look at reality look at the world, look at ourselves, look at time itself with your eyes that we might be given a glimpse of understanding your purposes. Speak, O Lord, 
your servants are listening. Amen. We start with hating life. I want to make a connection back to chapter 2, a section highlighted by a phrase that we didn't treat last Sunday. In chapter 2, verse 17, the teacher simply says, so I hated life. (laughs) Um, Pretty frank, raw honesty. Can anyone relate? So I hated life. Maybe for a season in the past, maybe now. You hate life because you're stuck in an unhappy marriage. You hate life because you're stuck on a path you never wanted. You hate life because you're stuck heading towards this dead end in a pattern that seems endless and meaningless, hevel. So what do you do? The worldly advice would go along these lines. Hey, you only live once. Be true to yourself. Pursue what your heart desires, which almost always involves or centrally includes cutting bait and running, cutting bait on your marriage, your job, living here in North Jersey, maybe even on your mortgage. Choose individual gratification, the world would say, over responsibility and commitments. Let someone else clean up the mess that you're going to leave behind because it's all about you and your happiness. That's paramount. The world would say it's hevel to never chase your dreams and become happy. So do whatever it takes to bring about, to make your own happiness and meaning. That idea makes promises it can never keep. That idea always disappoints. It's just one more attempt to satisfy the idolatry of self. I am king, idolatry of self says. My happiness is the highest priority in the world. And cutting bait and running always leaves more destruction, and it creates greater distance between you and God and between you and others. Because saying, I'd rather turn away from my primary relationships, my primary commitments, give up on them, is very much the same as telling God vertically, I'd rather turn away from a relationship with my Creator and live on my own terms. I'd rather live according to the wisdom that I have crafted. And that community of one inevitably shrinks your soul, makes it small. It decreases your capacity to love and be loved. That idea makes promises it can never keep. So how do you hate life in a godly manner? Let's just play this out. You know, we don't often talk about cultivating hate in church, but how might you hate life in a God-honoring way? I'd suggest you start here. You, You first begin to see that so much of your hating life is actually hating the circumstances that haven't worked out according to your master plan. You hate life because you haven't gotten what you want. You hate life because God just doesn't get it. If it's heavenly-oriented, your resentment and anger and bitterness, He just won't get with the program, meaning your program, that your wisdom has crafted over and above His wisdom. And realizing that folly is a good first step, why you hate life. 
And then you begin to cultivate emotions like Jesus. For example, when he stood outside of Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11, he was upset, absolutely, grieving his friend. But the word that's used there gives us a sense of what upset involved. It wasn't just crying and grieving. It was anger. Jesus was upset, yes. And he was directing that anger at sin and brokenness, at every consequence of the fall of humanity upon the world. He was angry that sin does this kind of stuff, destroys families, breaks friendships, causes mourning and grief. So how do you start hating life in a very godly manner? You start aiming at the real enemies, which are sin and death, not at God, not at fellow sinful human beings. So when you watch the news, politicians behaving badly, rapes, murders, armed robberies, natural disasters, financial crises, you don't let yourself on one hand grow numb to the messiness of the world, to the chaos and the futility and frustration, nor do you allow bitterness and anger at the other side, the opponent, the enemy, to grab hold of your heart. Instead, of, uh, instead of cultivating hatred for the individual, you begin to aim at what's underneath what's the problem, at the sin and brokenness and slavery to idols that's supporting all of this chaos. You aim at the root, and then more and more, if you're cultivating emotions along the lines of Jesus' emotions, you fall on your knees in desperation in prayer asking God to have mercy on the broken, other broken people just like yourself, on the oppressed, on the forgotten. And if you're praying, you can't be hating. Then you grow in finding satisfaction in living according to God's design in the midst of a fallen world that is absolutely still chaotic and broken. Life under the sun is a mess, but you find glimpses of beauty you find little fingerprints of God here and there. Corrupted as it may be, the design of God, the intent of the Creator is good. And you see these hints, these foretastes of glory. You cultivate at the same time a longing for the new heavens and the new earth where, uh, because you were made for another place where your every heart's desire will be fully satisfied. Some Christians end up hating this world and wanting to escape on some kind of space pod, you know, get me out of here. The biblical mandate actually is something in between. There's this delicate balance of recognizing, yes, this world is messed up, and I'm messed up. I'm part of the reason this world is messed up. And the, 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 the solution isn't just escaping to a better place. The solution is trusting that God is at work making all things new, because Heaven is really more accurately described. You've heard me say this if you've been around GRC. It's more accurately described as the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven implies this sort of spiritual, ethereal reality. No, glory will involve dirt under your toes, sand between your toes. It's earthy. It's material. God will make all things new, physical and spiritual realities, all at the same time. If you believe there's only life under the sun, then the chaos and futility and frustration of the world will lead you to despair and desperation. Hevel, this too is meaningless. 
But if you believe and live according to the reality that there's also life promised above the sun, above the heavens, then the same turmoil and suffering and mess are, quote, momentary troubles. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. These, these verses are, are worth uh, storing away in your mind. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Light and momentary troubles. This is a messy world. If all there was was life under the sun, it would be hevel, hevel, hevel but there's more. And there's an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Secondly, times and seasons. Uh, This poem that begins chapter 3 inspired a song written by Pete Seeger that later became a number one hit single in 1965 by The Birds, with a Y, The Birds. Um, If you um, are familiar with Golden Oldies, you can probably hear it in your head. Uh, Except for six words... In the song, it's entirely made up of these verses, straight out of the Bible. One writer pointed out, God wrote a pop song. (laughs) Um, The song is very catchy. It's upbeat. Some would say it has a subtle, hidden message uh, that's a plea for world peace. If you put some ends of standards together, they say, you know, this is what Pete Seeger meant. It's possible. But context is always critical to understanding. And here's a context uh, that God placed it in, not Pete Seeger. It comes right after chapter 2, verse 26. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, theme of the book. And it comes right before, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has placed on the human race. I'm not sure the poem is meant to be catchy and upbeat and sing-songy. The message here is really about time's relentless march, time not stopping for anyone, like sand flowing through an hourglass. When it's done, it's done. Time's up. Game over. Even Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, um, put this in, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. The opening of day, if we insert a little word to help us understand it, is when you wake up. And just like that, poof, hevel, dream is over. Hardly reality. You, you sometimes can't even remember what you were just thinking through, right? What little world you were in, what you were engaged in. And that's the reality of time rolling on like a stream that just doesn't stop, keeps moving. So this poem uses 14 pairings to capture the full range of life under the heavens, verse 1. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And if we try to put them into a few categories and not treat these exhaustively, uh, the, the first category might be relationships. So we'd pull out some of these pairings, laughing, weeping, dancing, mourning, embracing, not embracing, loving, hating. And and we might have some of these thoughts. Life 
is not all birthday parties. There are times for candles on a cake, and there are times for candles at a vigil in mourning, at a death. You dance at weddings in festive clothes. You mourn at funerals where you leave the fashion statement at home in your closet. It's not the time to dress pretty, dress fancy. You figure out who's a hugger and who's not, embracing, not embracing. Let me tell you, this is one of the more challenging aspects of pastoral ministry. After the, after the service is over, you know, do you hug or do you not hug? And, and you can help a brother out, okay? Put out the hand, and I'll get the hint. Give me a fist bump or go for the hug, okay? I'm giving you permission. I'm a hugger. If you want a hug, there it is, all right? Um, some of you, of course, take the express train down the back corridor out the door, <laughs> and that would fall under not embracing. Um, that's fine. You know, there's a time for everything. There's a season for every activity. There's a part of this theme that's incredibly frustrating for a lot of people, especially us in a wealthier country, and let's be honest, in a more spoiled country than average, far above average. And and that's that we're so trained as consumers that we want to pick and choose the time for each of these parts of life listed in the poem. Or at least we want to know, well, when is it going to come? Yeah, I, can, I can get ready. I'll be prepared mentally, um, logistically, financially. But um, I skipped a whole section. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, but let me talk second, uh, secondly about another category that we'll call work, okay? Um, planting, uprooting, some, some more of these pairs. Building, tearing down, scattering, gathering, searching, giving up. I didn't put them all on this little chart, um, all 14 pairs. Uh, I don't know about you, I occasionally enjoy catching one of the episodes of the Alaska show on, um, on Discovery, I think. And, um, you know, watching the show, you'd, you'd think life in the wilderness world would be relaxing, but every episode, it seems like they're going to die or starve <laughs> if they don't build the barn before winter, if they don't catch a few more salmon you know, if they, don't catch, if they don't find the last lost cow out on the prairie, their backyard's like 14 miles long, you know. There's this urgency, and every season has some critical task that has to be done. Our family and friends in Vermont give us a, a personal glimpse into this season of life. Um, you know, winter, for example... Um, is the time when nothing can move, literally, because of all the snow and ice piled up. Winter is the time when you go back into your backyard, again, you know, 14 acres, and you chop down all the dead trees, and you pile it up so that when the maple sap starts flowing uh, in the beginning hints of spring, you can be boiling that sap 24-7. That's the time you do that kind of stuff. In the dead of winter, you... Fix your snow machines in your barn. That's what they do because they have time. You, you look at your equipment. You, you get ready for spring planting. So much of life is, is lived close to the land. In the winter, you eat root vegetables or whatever you've canned from the previous summer. That's life according to the seasons of nature. And in the summer, you track the progress of the corn crop. I tell you, uh, Cedar's mom calls every Sunday morning at, at uh, 730 
and there's a report on the cows and the corn, literally. That, in, in the wintertime, there's a report on how much snow has fallen. Their, they, their awareness in um, a, an area of the country that's so close to the land is cyclical and seasonal. We, we lose that living in suburbia. And even in our global economy, where food is flown in from every parts of the globe, um, you can get whatever you want in a moment's notice. Isn't there something unique about cherry season right now? Right? You can't get them in the middle of the winter. I don't care where they get flown into. They don't taste the same. And pretty soon, that peak of peach season. And then Jersey corn. We, we get these little glimpses of life lived according to seasons. There's a time for everything. What I started earlier saying was there, there's a frustrating aspect to this for us moderns, us consumer-oriented people, because we're just used to picking and choosing whatever we want, getting it when we want. And farmers have this advantage. They have this natural creaturely humility because the, big, the most important part of their livelihood, they can't control, and it's the weather. They can't control how much rain falls in a given amount of time. They can't control how long that drought is going to last. They're at the whim of nature, and they live according to those cycles. We would do well to learn from folks like farmers how to let go of the wheel just a little bit in our lives and to recognize that times and seasons are out of our hands. One last category we might look at we could call generations, birth and death, reflective of this idea. Where and when you're born makes a huge difference. And so today you might be a peace-loving hippie. You might um, think that there's never any just cause for war. But if you were born in the U.S. in 1915 and many other countries, you would have been drafted into World War II, which, according to this poem, was a time to kill. And there was no choice. Um, there, there, There was a choice of running, but for the most part, people accepted that lot in life. And by the way, as a little aside, a little asterisk, this poem, um, like much of the Bible, is descriptive and not prescriptive. Not much of the Bible, some of the Bible. It describes um, life under the sun. It doesn't prescribe. It doesn't tell you this is what you must do. Pick a time to kill, pick a time to heal, pick a time to... It's just saying these are reflective of aspects of life under the sun. No one chooses when or into what family they're born. No one chooses the, the date or the, the nature of their death. One is cause for celebration. The other is cause for deep grief, but each comes in its God-ordained season. Back to the birds, number one song. Um, Ken reminded me of this. He, he's, uh, he's a little bit more in tune with the 1960s music than I am. And uh, the title is the refrain, which is the most significant part of the song that's not straight out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, turn, turn, turn. Um, And my first thought was, what does turn mean when I was looking at the lyrics? And no disrespect to Pete Seeger, I don't know what his intent was, but I have two ideas for what turn, turn, turn mean in the context of Ecclesiastes 3. The first idea is exactly what we've been talking about, and this idea of the earth just keeps turning. Time keeps going. Season after season follows itself. The cycles don't stop. There's nothing you can do about it. 
It's relentless time. The second idea is this. I, I definitely doubt this was on Pete Seeger's mind, but turn is one of the most biblical terms that we could come across. The idea of change, the, the word repentance is simply a turning away or a returning. What are we turning away from? Sin and death. And what are we turning toward or returning to? We're turning to God and all of His perfect promises. Turn, turn, turn. What a great theme um, if we put these pieces together. As life goes on under the heavens, as life so often seems meaningless, as hevel after hevel hits us relentlessly, how do we find meaning? Turn away from that which is merely under the sun and turn back towards God with whom you were designed to be most fulfilled in intimate relationship. How's that possible for sinners and rebels like us? That leads us lastly to in the fullness of time. So Ecclesiastes, there's toil, there's meaninglessness, there are all kinds of questions with no answers, but there's a glimpse of good. Verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. It's there underneath the chaos and the frustration and the futility. And then the teacher says, God has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. If there's nothing else than the natural world under the sun, then Hevel takes over. Hevel has the last word. It's emptiness. Vanity of vanities. But God has purposes that include reality above the heavens. In addition to life under the heavens. He's made us not just physical beings, but also spiritual and eternal. He's the creator, and we're dependent upon Him, the one who knows all things that no one can fathom. Verse 11, as, as Augustine prayed um, way back in the fourth century, fifth century, you made us for yourself, is directing this at God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're designed to be in relationship with Him. There is no meaning. There is no escape from heaven apart from being in communion with God. But there's a problem. And it's reflected in verse 17, the last verse I read this morning. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. There's a time and a season for this too, unfortunately for us. What hope is there for anyone? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The New Testament tells us what hope there is, and it has to do with time. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. There was just the right moment, the appointed pregnant moment in history when the Father sent the Son. The Apostle Paul also wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 6, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Perfect moment. God's timing flawless. At just the right time. Jesus knew times and seasons. He was born in humility. He went to His death in humiliation. Look at the chart and, and 
piece these pictures together as Jesus reflects his understanding experientially of the times and seas. He mourned with the suffering. He healed the sick and the handicapped. Think about the, the man born blind being healed by Jesus. He's, he's probably in his 20s or 30s and never seen a single thing. And can you imagine him opening his eyes that work for the first time and seeing colors and flowers and blue sky and the face of his loved ones? Can you imagine him not laughing and crying with joy and giving praise and overflowing to his his friends and, and, and anyone who is around, whether they care to hear him or not, just exulting in sight. Can you imagine Jesus not leaping with joy, doing a little jig with the, the lame man who suddenly has strong whole legs and can dance before the Lord and leap for joy? I can't imagine Jesus not laughing, not exuberantly enjoying that little moment that's a foretaste of resurrection to come, making all things new, maybe even embracing, maybe um, um, overflowing with words of love to make promises that the kingdom of God is at hand, as if to say, oh, just wait, there's more to come. Jesus also longed for those moments of silence in prayer with his Father. He got away. He hid from the crowds. But he also knew his calling to speak boldly, speak words that his enemies were waiting for him to say. He anticipated the time for war on the night he was betrayed as he prayed in the garden, and he knew that the only way to accomplish peace real lasting peace and healing was to kill sin and death through His own death. God the Son entered life under the sun, experienced it all with every frustration and futility that the world has to throw at us. And through His death and resurrection, He opened the way for new life, greater than Eden glory, to be restored to his people and to creation where there will be no more death, no more weeping, no more mourning, only a time and a season that will never end, filled with laughing and dancing and embracing and loving. That's the promise of Ecclesiastes, only fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Ecclesiastes is not the final word. Thank you that the teacher even though Solomon was given wisdom by your spirit, even though he shared a, a raw memoir to be preserved through the centuries, we thank you that Solomon is not the final king of David. We thank you that Solomon was not the ultimate promise of that line, but Jesus was. And he makes all things new. He fulfills every promise. He destroys hevel and replaces it with the promises of the new heavens and the new earth. We long for that day, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.